Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Politically Direct and Al Franken. Now is Fred Edwards. Mr. Edwards is the editorial director of the American Humanist Association and the editor of the Humanist Magazine. He joins us now on Politically Direct. Mr. Edwards, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. We have been talking in the previous segment. We're talking with Kevin Phillips about his contention that we're now in the middle of an American theocracy. He's written a wonderful book to that effect. Tell me what the American Humanist Association does. Okay, well, one of the things we do in regard to that specific issue and have been doing since our founding in 1941 is exposing the public to many of these theocratic inclinations of people and today what we call the religious right. But this has been going on for a long time, building up slowly, and we try to report this kind of information to the public. Specifically, what is your mission? What is a humanist? Okay, well, first, what is a humanist? A humanist is a person who uses reason and compassion as the main guides to life and sees the universe as natural, and therefore we base our ethics on human need and interest in the here and now. And so our mission as an organization is to promote these ideas, which we see as basically underlying most of the progressive values that uh, we advocate socially and politically. Without putting too fine a point on it, the omission here is God. Yes, we're a godless bunch, I would say. But that's not a bad thing, and so many people present that as a bad thing. And we say, look, we just see the universe as natural, the God concept is irrelevant, and that values are to be derived by our needs. And so often, religious groups come forth and say, well, let's oppose this law or let's promote this other law, just because... Uh, they have some religious reason, like, for example, stem cell research. Some people condemn it for religious reasons. If you have rational reasons, if you have practical reasons, that's fine. We can talk about those. But when you throw the Bible at us, that's an irrelevancy, and we need to look at the issues from a human standpoint. I love Kurt Vonnegut, who considers himself a humanist. I love uh, his description being a humanist means trying to behave decently without expectation of rewards or punishment after you're dead. That's right, and he's our honorary president, and he's been our honorary president since Isaac Asimov died, who was our previous president. So people who actually have had some success with science fiction, but specifically understand science, and therefore some degree of reason, they seem to be attracted to the philosophy. Yes, and not just science fiction advocates, but real scientists, like Steven Pinker is our humanist of the year this year. And he's a leading evolutionary psychologist. Carl Sagan was as well. And Carl Sagan was a humanist of the year. Stephen J. Gould, Edward O. Wilson. Pretty distinguished group. Yes, uh, and that's just the scientists. Then you can go into the social activists and the leaders, uh, just so many people. But, you know, again, it's very interesting to me that the nomenclature, the language of humanism is one designed. It's, it's the reason the word progressive now exists instead of liberal, because liberal has been so demonized. You would not call yourself the American atheists, even though the practical effect is that of not believing in a God. Well, that's just a starting point. We go beyond that. We say that when someone gives up belief in God and they take a view of the universe that's natural, Often the question comes up, okay, now what? And humanism is the now what? It's the ethics, it's the life of compassion and reason that follows once you don't have these other things to fall back on. It's the here and now orientation. But it's fair to say that there are no people who are 
believers in a deity who are humanists. Is that right? Well, no, you can have humanistic types of Christianity which accept many of our humanist values, but oftentimes attribute them to God. We'll say that, you know, God gave us a brain to think and we should be reasonable. God gave us compassion. We don't happen to hold that view. We don't think there's any evidence for it. How do you attract people to the cause of humanism in a situation where the culture is so oriented toward religiosity? Well, first of all, we're right here in Washington, D.C., and we've been here in Washington since around 2003. And now that we've settled in, we've been forming alliances with various groups that we have common cause with here in the district. We such have, as? Uh, okay, uh, such as groups like the Human Rights Campaign, Americans United for Separation of Church and State, People for the American Way. Which sponsors this program. Yes. Uh, then there's the Interfaith Alliance that we're part of. We're a member of the Save Darfur Coalition. We're just very active with many groups that we have common cause with. So that's one of the ways we do it. We also respond with press releases to breaking news, and we get right out there, and we've gotten a lot of publicity in the media of late due to the fact that we get our comments in there when the news breaks, and we point out what the humanist take on many of these issues is. Well, let me ask you then. There's a breaking story as we speak. What's the humanist take on the Da Vinci Code controversy? All right, well, it's one of those kinds of things where you have sort of kind of bad biblical scholarship, making for an entertaining movie. And so long as people understand that it's entertainment, that it's just for fun, that it's fiction from cover to cover, then there's no problem there. I mean, you can use uh, religious topics and any other topics for fiction. I, I'm interested to hear you refer to it as bad biblical scholarship because sort of by definition, aren't you viewing the Bible as bad scholarship? No, the Bible itself is an ancient book, like the Iliad, like the Odyssey, and you can have good biblical scholarship, just as you can have good scholarship on the Iliad and the Odyssey. Fair enough. So, therefore, you know, there is good and bad biblical scholarship, and, in fact, there's more bad scholarship than good scholarship out there, because everybody can take something from the Bible and turn it to their purpose. Well, I want to talk to you about that, because the Bible is used more frankly, than any other book in informing our political process these days. I would rather it was the Constitution and the Declaration, but it seems that we are forced to discuss the Bible frequently in our political debate. Do you have to become a biblical expert in order to treat some of these issues politically? We have to be aware of what's in the Bible and how people are using it. It doesn't necessarily mean that we all have to be biblical scholars, although we have biblical scholars in our membership, that people who study the Bible as history, who study it as archaeology and so on, these are scientists and scholars just like any other, and many of them are quite secular. But in any case, the thing that we look at when we look at the Bible is how is someone using it? People can use the Bible for progressive causes, in which case we become their allies. But when people take the Deuteronomic codes or they get absolutistic about the Ten Commandments or they try to impose their narrow religious interpretation of the Bible in the public schools and in government, then it's a church-state separation issue and we stand up and have something to say. Welcome back to the Al Franken Show. Our guest is uh, George Soros. He is the chairman of Soros Fund Management. 
and the Open Society Institute. He is the author of a new book, The Age of Fallibility, Consequences of the War on Terror, and he joins us today from uh, New York City. Thank you, uh, Mr. Soros. Pleasure. I enjoyed the book very much, uh, learned a lot. I, I, before we get into it, though, I want to ask you, has, has Rush Limbaugh thanked you for advocating treatment instead of incarceration? Right. <laughs> well, uh, it is very serious, and I think uh, we just had a conference in Baltimore where we have been doing it uh, for the last eight years with uh, positive results. So I think uh, before we send people to jail, uh, we ought to offer them treatment. And there should be treatment on demand. It's not available, and that's a scandal. I think that we spend 70% of the federal budget on on uh, enforcement and 30% on treatment, and that should at the very minimum be reversed. Right. Uh, okay, let's get to the uh, – I, I agree completely. Let's get to the book now. Um the day after 9-11, Bill Bennett went on TV and said that if this didn't tell you that we should view the world as black and white, nothing should. And I thought it just exactly the opposite, because I thought, like, the guys who flew the planes into the building saw the world in black and white. Right. And and your book presents a, a more sophisticated and epistemological argument <laughs> than mine there. Right. But basically, you say that certain things are are, are, are knowable. Are, are absolutely knowable, like physical science, but others aren't. And that's where you get into fallibility. Right, right, right. Well, you know, we, our relationship to reality is a very complicated one uh, because knowledge can just get us that far. We are ourselves participants, so we can actually uh, influence reality. Our uh, Ideas and our actions are part of reality, and because of that, uh, they can't actually correspond to reality because there isn't anything uh, uh, specific to correspond to. What the world is is somewhat contingent on what we think about the world, but the and our actions influence the outcome. But the 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 yes. outcome will rarely correspond to our expectations. So we can shape reality, but reality is different from what we expected. And we need to understand that, then we understand reality better. And, and you applied this to markets, and that's why you're fabulously wealthy. Well, I've used that in the markets, and it has worked for me there. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I use it in politics also. Uh, and I think it, 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 it's something that people need to also be uh, aware of and understand. So misconceptions uh, play a very important role in shaping uh, uh, reality. And the best example that I can think of is the war on terror. Because, uh, you know, it, it has been accepted as the natural way to respond to, uh, to the terrorist attack. But in actual fact, it's a, it's a false metaphor uh, that has been misused by the Bush administration and as a result has had really very adverse uh, uh, negative uh, consequences, because waging war is not actually the right way uh, to uh, deal with terrorism. Now, but you you were for the war in Afghanistan. 
I, I was for the war in, in Afghanistan, uh, and, and I'm not a pacifist in any way. But, but the, the uh, and by now, of course, I was very much opposed to the invasion of, of Iraq because I felt that was on false pretenses, and 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 I stood up against it. Uh, but by now. The, the large majority of people recognize that the invasion of Iraq was, uh, uh, at the best, a mistake, uh, but it's a, a tragic uh, mistake. And at but, worst, uh, at worst, we were lied into it. Is basically right, what you're saying. Yes, and, and I think we were lied into it. Right. Uh, but people still think, in in terms of the war on terror, nobody questions the war on terror, and I would like to question it. And I'd like to get people to think a little bit that maybe that's where we really went wrong to start with. Well, you say it's it's a, a false metaphor. What do you mean by that? It, it, it means that we are using an expression war and apply it to to um, uh, to uh, uh, an abstraction terrorism and and as a result it leads us to do the wrong things and actually endangers our very uh, basis of our democratic society because we are in a state of war that gives the the uh, uh, the commander in chief uh, special powers so it leads to the extension of uh, executive privilege, and it's a war that will never end. And our democracy is based on the division of powers, and that division of powers can be just swept aside if we are in the war on terror. So that's one very negative The main negative consequence, it seems, that you write about in the book is our place in the world, our ability to project our our power and our uh, our influence in the world toward creating a more uh, open world? Yeah, that's that's right. And and um, you see, by waging war on terrorists, what do we do? We kill innocent people. And if we wage war on because war by its nature. Uh, it creates innocent victims. It's inevitable in a war. If you wage war on terrorists, uh, the terrorists uh, keep themselves hidden, so it's more likely that you, the people you hit, are not the people you, uh, that, uh, not the terrorists. And then, when you make it into an abstraction, war on terror, then of course you can do practically anything uh, under that rubric. So. Now, we abhor uh, uh, terrorists because they kill innocent people, uh, people for a political uh, end. But waging war on terror, we are doing the same thing to them. And they see us in the same light as we see terrorists. But I think but, you need to make a distinction here because uh, and, and uh, if you're for what we did in Afghanistan, and I think it can easily be argued that if we hadn't gone to Iraq, that we could have uh, done so much more in Afghanistan. Absolutely. To make that an open society, to make it a democratic society, to 
to uh, help our. It was a great opportunity to to uh, to actually you know into nation build. It could have been done uh, uh, very successfully. It would have been a shining example of of uh, what we can do in a positive way, and it would have turned, I think, uh, world opinion uh, very much in our favor. Yeah, I mean, it actually, wouldn't we wouldn't have needed to turn it in our favor. It was in our favor. You are right. Yeah, you are right. <laughs> I mean, but so so I want to make this distinction when you say, and and I want to understand it because you you did want a war on the terrorists who attacked us on nine eleven, and they were in 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 the case of uh, we we live in a world where it, sometimes it's appropriate to wage war. Uh, so, in the case of uh, Afghanistan, which was the address of, um, of where bin, bin Laden lived, and that's where the training camps of Al Qaeda were. So, uh, having suffered this attack, it was appropriate uh, to in, invade Afghanistan and overturn uh, the Taliban uh, regime. I think that was fully justified. And we had the full support of the of of the world of the international community. Now, what is the consequence of of not having the support of the world now in terms of things like uh, nuclear proliferation, in, in in terms of things like global warming, in terms of uh, all the challenges that face us in the uh, in, in in the in the future? Uh, well, first of all, it's a tremendous loss of power of American power. And secondly, it's a great source of instability for the world order. So it's, it's very bad for the world, and it's particularly bad uh, for us. And it's also, it's, there's another uh, uh, false metaphor involved here, which is uh, power. You know, power is a term that we have adopted from natural science, where power is something uh, that can be quantified and clearly uh, defined what it is and measured and so on. But in a social setting, uh, there are all different kinds of power. And, and uh, the, the uh, Bush administration or the neocons sort of equate power with military power. And that's only one kind of, of, of power, uh, and there's countervailing powers. So I, I propose another uh, metaphor, which I think is more appropriate. You know, the children's game, uh, 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 stone, scissor, paper, is a, I think is a better description of power in the social setting. That, you know, uh, uh, the... Um, uh, Rock, paper, paper scissors. Paper yeah. covers the stone, the stone uh, breaks the scissor, uh, and, and the scissor cuts the paper. So uh, we have military power, but uh, the, the, um, uh, the rest of the world is now so opposed to our abusing our military power, that actually our influence has greatly diminished. And even our military power, which we, we were in a position to project uh, overwhelming military power any part of the world, we can't do it anymore because we are bogged down in Iraq uh, on occupation duties for which the army was ill-prepared and is performing very poorly. And and one of our big challenges right now is is Iran, and you make the argument, and I think a lot of 
almost everyone who has their eyes open has, that Iran has been a, a big beneficiary in many ways, and, and radical elements within Iran have been of our of our war in Iraq. Absolutely, they they came out the winners, and they are they are posing a threat. Uh, to, uh, to us and to the world, which is much bigger than Saddam ever was. Not that I have any kind words to say about him, but the the actual threat posed by Iran today is much greater than the the threat posed by Saddam then. I, I want to take a break. When I come back, I want I want to talk about the the, the concept of fallibility and the concept of. Uh, of open society as an imperfect society that holds itself open for improvement. Very good. Okay? Good. So, so we're, we're going to come back with George Soros. Uh, the, the book is The Age of, of Fallibility, and you all, all know who uh, George Soros is. We'll be right back. how it works it feels a little worse than when we drove our hearse right through that screaming crowd Fred Edwards, he's the editorial director of the American Humanist Association and editor of the Humanist Magazine. Fred, before the break, we were talking about the way the Bible is used in public discourse now, and particularly in political discourse. There's been a flap uh, in recent years about the availability of the Ten Commandments in public buildings and the posting of things in schools. How does the AHA involve itself in that? Do you get involved in these yes. fights? Yes. The American Humanist Association looks upon these as church-state separation issues. And when you see people trying to post the Ten Commandments on public property at taxpayer expense, that it really is promoting one set of views as opposed to others, and in a number of various ways. For example, the numbering of the Ten Commandments differs between Protestants and Catholics. So very often we get a Protestant version being posted in the public. Some have 11, is that what you're well, saying? No, no, no. It's just a, which is number two by various definitions. How do you, do you break up number, what's some call number one into two? In other words, the numbering slightly varies. It's all the same verses. Right. But the other thing is they post abbreviated versions of the Ten Commandments, not the actual way they appear in the Bible. And they appear in the Bible in two places, and those two places are not identical in their wording. So essentially what we're getting is we're getting kind of a winnowed-down paraphrase almost of the Ten Commandments, a particular translation of them, a particular numbering. And then again, these are not documents that are sacred to, say, Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims generally. So therefore, there are many groups besides humanists who simply don't see the Ten Commandments as underlying their principles of law. Also, to suggest that they are historical documents, that they underlie our law, well, you, you just start with the beginning of the Ten Commandments, where it says, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, we have a First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution that talks about freedom of religion and that government shall not establish religion. And so if the Ten Commandments are saying, have no other gods, but the First Amendment is saying, you may have whatever god you wish to believe. Seems to be in conflict. That's, that's a conflict. That cannot be the basis of our laws. And if you look at the minutes of the Constitutional Convention, at which our Constitution was written, and the debates on the Bill of Rights, the issue of the Ten Commandments was not discussed. 
This is not the basis of our. But I know, I know, gay marriage came up a lot in those discussions too. That was. A, <laughs> I remember Ben Franklin had a big opinion on that. You know, I'm stunned at the way, frankly, and I'm stunned every day, which leaves me often stunned at how so many theological ideas have informed political debate, and you see it on the floor of the House of Representatives when they will talk about how. God really has to impact the vote that they're casting on a specific issue. We see it on the abortion debate. We see it, obviously, on gay rights. It's coming up next month, another constitutional amendment to ban gay marriage. How do you actually, I mean, and and this is the big problem, how do you even address it with politicians who, as I, I said to Kevin Phillips earlier in this broadcast, would rather be associated with child molesters than atheists? Well, keep in mind that, These politicians are doing this because there is so much talk these days at this time in our political life about religion and that it's not good politics, if you want to be elected, to appear to be critical of religion. And so people oftentimes make references to religion that at other times in our nation's history would have been considered unthinkable. You see this is cyclical then? You see this is just a period of time? This is a period of time that we go through because if you look at the time that our nation was founded and you look at the Constitution that was written, the word God appears nowhere in the U.S. Constitution. And during the deliberations, Benjamin Franklin, who you mentioned earlier, wanted uh, the discussions of the new Constitution to begin with a prayer. And they voted him down. They said, no, we're not going to call on the Almighty to guide our deliberations. And so they had a purely secular process for developing our secular Constitution. And at different times in history, until now, really, you just didn't talk about religion that much in politics because it was really considered a violation of the separation principle that has helped this nation achieve its unique religious freedom for over 200 years. What you just said is, I think, telling. At no time in our history have we done that, even going back to the founders. So what gives you cause to believe that this is just a moment in time and we can put that genie back in the bottle? Because it's out now, and it is certainly a part of absolutely every fabric of our political discussion. Well, I think we've seen what happens when you have a president like George W. Bush who advocates his very strongly religious views, and now his popularity is going down. As we talk about the midterm elections, Democrats are more and more in the ascendancy. Yes, we're seeing a lot of popular religion out there. But then again, this Da Vinci Code is another example of how people will use religion for entertainment. People will debate and discuss religion. With scientific developments, people are having to rethink many of their views. So I think in time, this too will pass. It just may take a while because this probably is the worst it's ever been. What specifically then, let's look at the roadmap for how we get out of this mess. What would you propose to do? Let's say you had the political power. I'm now talking to Senator Edwards. What would you do to move the country away from this kind of religious fervor? Well, I think one of the things that people need to be aware of is simply the facts and reality. So I think a a state-of-the-art science education in our public schools is critical, that modern science provides a basis for knowledge, and so many efforts are being made to compromise science, whether it's the Bush administration trying to censor science websites that are associated with the government, or whether it's public schools debating uh, intelligent design. design. Yes, And, and so our point is, look, Get the scientific facts out there. Give our students a state-of-the-art education. That's what the taxpayers deserve. That's what they're paying for. And when they understand that what's being promoted sometimes is pseudoscience or a failure to fully inform about science, 
uh, things I think will change. So that's one of the areas. And then just our efforts, we publicize and publish through our humanist magazine many of these ideas that we want people to think about. And we try to get into the news stories so people understand there is an alternative. Because, in fact, once people know there is an alternative through the Internet and through the news media and through education, then they will increasingly think for themselves, and I think then they will see that many of these ideas just don't hold up to scrutiny. But, Senator Edwards, <laughs> if, if the gentleman will yield for a moment, isn't the, the problem that when you're dealing with something, and uh, I use this word deliberately, as fundamental as someone's personal religious beliefs, and when we're talking with Kevin Phillips, the numbers are very significant in this country. I mean, the numbers of people who vote based on someone's religious affiliation or their sense that they are a person of God are very significant, and it is not an entry point for rational discussion. You cannot have a conversation with a fundamentalist and say, here, let's look at this reasonably, because if the fallback position is always, this is God's will, whether it be stem cell research, whether it be choice, whether it be gay rights, whatever the issue, there is no room for rational discourse. And again, it seems as if you have two groups speaking in different languages. We're not dealing here with a total sleep of reason. Fundamentalists, evangelicals, many people, for example, they were part of the Save Darfur Coalition as we were. Sure. There are many areas that we can agree on that it is possible to reason with all sorts of people. Granted, sometimes a person gets backed into a wall and they retreat to faith. That's true. But there are lots and lots of religious people in this country who hold progressive views, who look at issues uh, rationally, who look at the science, who support gay rights and gay marriage and things like that. And America's values are changing. And Americans do respond to reason, even with their religious values. The way they do it, however, is they say, well, it turns out this is what our religion was really teaching all along, and we just didn't properly understand it. We'll step back and let that process happen. But people do think, and that if you look at the history of religion, you see it has grown, it has progressed, it has evolved, and that where many fundamentalists are today burn the fires that burn the witches of yesterday, that fundamentalists are far more modern and evolved and heretical than they realize. And if you look at the history of religion, you can see that. And there was a major debate during the Renaissance as to whether you could make a decision for Christ or whether God made that decision for you. That was a big debate that happened between Martin Luther and the Christian humanists of the Renaissance. And where the fundamentalists are today is where the Christian humanists were in the Renaissance. So religion evolves. People can be reasoned with. The facts do change people's minds. It's just sometimes harder with some folks than with others. I might want to rename you the American Optimist Association. <laughs> I'm heartened by it, I have to tell you, because as I look at this, and I've been in politics a long time, this is one of the most difficult situations I've ever seen, because things are so polarized, and it is so difficult to have the kind of conversation that you and I are having now. Have you debated some people on the Christian right? What kind of yes, I've, how does that I, play out? During the 80s, I was very active in debating on the creation versus evolution controversy, um, I debated Henry Morris, Dwayne Gish, and all the other leading creationists in all creation, and had some pretty successful debates, I'd say, with them. And the point is, is because I understood where they were coming from, the way they used arguments, and I found that audiences could respond if you answered their arguments directly, point by point. And it can be done. 
it just takes doing your homework, and that's what we do in the American Humanist Association. Well, you've clearly done your homework, and it's uh, really a pleasure to hear that and to have you articulate your point of view so well. Fred Edwards, you are the editor of The Humanist magazine. How do people subscribe to The Humanist? They can go online to thehumanist.org. They can go online to americanhumanist.org and subscribe that way. We're also available on many select newsstands. Thousands of public libraries carry us. There's all sorts of ways to find us, but the easiest way is just to go on the Internet. Well, we'll put a link to it on our site, politicallydirectradio.com, and we thank you for joining us today on the program. Yeah, you're welcome. the Al Franken Show. Uh, George Soros is with us, chairman of the Soros Fund Management and uh, Open Society Institute, author of The Age of Fallibility, the, his new book. Now, uh, I want to I want to read a quote from your book, George. Uh, yeah. In today's America, the right-wing propaganda machine has been able to impose its interpretation of reality with a remarkable success. How is that possible? It's almost as if people were clamoring to be deceived. Yeah. That, um, that is where we are, and that's how we gotten so uh, off uh, so in such a difficult uh, situation. Because you know, we we were the the most powerful, successful nation on earth, and in the last three years, uh, you know, our position has declined incredibly, and that's because we have allowed and uh, a, a, a leadership uh, to. Uh, uh, ignore reality and uh, pursue, uh, impo- try to impose its views on the on the world, and that cannot be done because the result, uh, reality is going to punish you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have unintended consequences, and if you look at Iraq, that's uh, you know a tale of unintended consequences, and practically as everywhere you look. You see a successful an administration that's really extremely skilled and successful in manipulating the truth, uh, reaping uh, very adverse consequences. And slowly, the public is waking up, and there is now a, a sort of a disillusionment. Uh, which hopefully will get us back on the right uh, track. Well, let's talk about the the right-wing propaganda machine and you, because you have been attacked and attacked and attacked, especially uh, after the, the, and during the last election when you uh, spent some money to, to help defeat or try to defeat 
uh, uh, President Bush. And I never, ever see anyone on the right acknowledge the enormous role that you played in financing the fall of the Soviet Union in financing solidarity and the open uh, society uh, institute in its role in, in, uh, in, in the former Soviet Union and, and in Eastern Europe. Yeah, it's true. I mean, we we spent uh, I spent a lot of money uh, <laughs> on that because I really believe in an open society, uh, and I, you know, we have an annual budget of four hundred million dollars. I, I, I spent something approaching a billion dollars in in the former Soviet Union. Um, uh, you know, all uh, to to promote uh, open society. And uh, and that's why I think I'm in a fairly strong position uh, to to say that the way uh, the Bush administration is going about it, which is trying to impose um, democracy, let's uh, say in Iraq by invading it, is bound to be counterproductive. It it cannot possibly work. Now you know it. Uh, they they can cite. Uh, the case of Germany and and um, uh, Japan after the war. Hello. Yes, I'm. I'm with you. <laughs> right. uh, sorry. Uh, 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 you know, but that was that was a false uh, situation. Uh, well, they attacked us first of all. Because they attacked <laughs> us. We didn't attack them. Yeah. Uh, to impose democracy, they attacked us. We defeated them. The people rejected those regimes, they saw better, we were generous, we were far-sighted, uh, I wish we had been equally far-sighted. Well, that, now, now you, you, you talk about Truman and us at that peri- during that period as the yes. can-do society, yes. and now us as the feel-good society. Can you talk about those distinctions? Yeah, well, it, it's, uh, I'm asking that question, how, how, what happened? <laughs> what happened to us? Because, you know, when we had the Marshall Plan, we had a far-sighted, generous view of the world, and it, it, it was due to that attitude that we became as influential and powerful and successful as we turned out to be. Then this uh, success went to our head, and, and we have a different view of the world now, uh, and now we are, in, as a result, I think we are going to lose what we had gained in that period. And I'm asking the question, what really has happened? And I give the the answer that we have become a, a feel-good society that is unwilling to uh, face unpleasant reality. You've got uh, uh, Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth, and that kind of hints at it, uh, that there are problems that we are unwilling uh, to face. I think it does more than hint at it. Right. I think it kind of hits the nail on the head there. I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's the same point. We we need to face unpleasant reality, and because we haven't done it, reality has become really truly unpleasant. We we are in a dire situation, both as a country and as a civilization, because I think that our civilization is actually endangered because we we have a great deal of George. power. Over nature, you know, we have atomic uh, nuclear. George, we gotta go. Yeah, but thank you.
Thanks for listening, everybody. So I got another little bit of an unnerving email today. It was a letter from my self-proclaimed number one fan. And this is the first time my number one fan has written in. I was I was wondering who it was um, until today, of course. And so now I know who it is. But the fact that I got that email actually reminded me of something that I really meant to take care of a long time ago. Uh, you know, I, this this should have just been laid down from the beginning, and I just forgot about it. And it, you know, maybe it just wasn't really necessary until now. But I just want to make clear that if you are, well, if you're listening to this, chances are you like it. But, um, so we'll go with that assumption for now. So if you like the show, then you're a fan of the show. You're, I don't have fans. That's been my position from the very beginning. This show is not about me. I don't take credit for any of the content that goes into this show. I pass on all credit to all the contributors who do their great great shows every day, and I just steal from them. So you're a fan of theirs, you're a fan of the best of the left, uh, but you're not a fan of mine. What you are is a personal friend of mine. If you're listening to this show, if you like the show, if you appreciate it as a service that I provide or anything like that, if you like that I talk at the, at the end of the show and sometimes spew a lot of bullshit and sometimes try to say something that means a little bit of something every once in a while. If you like that, then that just, that just makes you a friend because uh, I really don't consider this to be, you know, my show uh, outside of the fact that that I came up with the idea. Now that, oh, that I will take credit for till the end of my days. Uh, I am extremely proud of the idea that I had to start this show and um, moderately proud that I've actually been able to keep it going for this long without burning out. But um, as far as the content goes, as far as, as far as the stuff that really makes you guys keep coming back, that's what you're a fan of, and it has nothing to do with me, and I'm fully aware of that. So I just want you to know that uh, emails declaring yourself a fan of mine uh, honestly makes me a little uncomfortable. You're a fan of the show. I'm 100% with you. I'm a fan of the show myself. On to far more important subjects. As you know, or not... I've been working on a project with a bunch of other podcasters. We have formed a progressive podcast network. You can find it at newmediarevolution.org. And now I know what you're thinking. Come on, I listen to all the shows already. I hear the promos a hundred times a day. They're played all over the network. You guys won't shut up about it. This time it's different. 100% thanks to Shelly of Citizen Against Lies podcast. She did all of the work 
to put together our brand new website, which is, well, if you saw the old website and then you see the new one, then you'll think, well, you guys are done. You know, it's the transformation is complete. The fact is, this is still going to be a temporary website as far as we think. Anyways, um, but it looks great. She did a great job. Go check it out. And, you know, there's the list of, of podcasts there, but there's more to it now as well. And it looks nice. And send Shelly a thank you note and congratulations and all that because she's 100% responsible for what's on the page right now. And as far as building a new website goes, that it's, it's pretty far in the future. We got big plans ahead. It, it's kind of we're flying a little bit by the seat of our pants and see what comes and what we can do and what we can't do. But one thing I will say is that if you want to donate a little bit to the tip jar in you know from the link at newmediarevolution.org there's no way that that's not going to help us out a little bit so i i'm sure we'll be doing more begging along those lines and uh, with more specific parameters but i know that we've got big plans and it might possibly cost a little bit of money maybe even big money but we're not sure yet so you can just keep that in mind when you go check that out so let me let you in on a little secret right now these little segments at the end of the show where i talk for a couple of minutes are easily my least favorite part of the show um you know i've done over 90 of these episodes and still to this day when i sit down to do the show i i hate doing the voiceovers at the end i can't stand it i procrastinate doing it if you if you give me eight hours to do one show that's exactly how long it'll take me to do it because that's how long i'll wait to do the voiceovers at the end uh, if 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 i didn't talk at the end of of any of these shows i would have all of the editing done for every show by the first day of the week and i wouldn't have to do any more work for the rest of the week but since i do one show on the first day of the week and then i procrastinate for the rest of the day before i do the voiceovers um it means that i have work to do for the rest of the week and it's a giant pain in the ass and the other little secret building on that point is that I'm a terrible public speaker, I have found, and I'll never get elected to anything because I don't know how to close well. Uh, I make what I think sometimes are good points and then just kind of fizzle out at the end and don't really know how to finish what I'm saying. And so a couple of minutes ago before I started talking about how much I don't like um, talking at the end, I had one of those fizzle out moments. And what happens when I do the show is I 
I talk until I run out of things to say, and then I just stop talking, and then I think for a while, and then I just start talking again, and you never hear it, because I edit out those long pauses, uh, well, at least I hope you don't hear it, uh, or hope you don't notice those uh, edit cuts, and so, so what I did was, you know, said, go visit the website, and, you know, maybe add a little bit of, uh, money to our our donation pot there and then I sat here staring at the computer for like 10 minutes and I was just thinking to myself get me the hell out of here can't I just be done now you know what am I going to say all right then you know that that's it for today and it just felt so inorganic that I couldn't just bring myself to say that out of nowhere. And I felt like I needed to say something like as a segue towards, okay, that's it. Have a good night. And, um, and I couldn't think of anything. And so my solution to that problem was to vent about how much I hate doing these segments at the end. So that's what you just heard. Have a good night, everybody. Hi, this is Shelley of the podcast Citizen Against Lies. I'm a proud member of the Progressive Podcast Network. Visit us at newmediarevolution.org. We are podcasting information and attitude 365 days a year. Why? Because knowledge is power. Be powerful.